3ABN Australia Radio would like to welcome you to Songs of Praise.
passing day We love you more As we say
looking for some answers to questions they don't know. I know someone real who satisfies the emptiness they try so hard to hide. Jesus says, Come, take water for your thirsty soul. I know you've lost your way. Jesus.
We are pleased you have joined us on Songs of Praise, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.
You can feel the wind blow, but there's no one who knows where it's going. And sometimes a breeze gently stirring the trees as it's blowing. That's just how it is when the spirit within starts to flow. are being encouraged to see the goodness of God on songs of praise. Every day they pass me by I can see it in their eyes 
Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Burst out and sing for joy. Yes, sing praises. Psalm 98 verse 4. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come, just as I Ah uh-huh.
Jesus 
to your company next time on Songs of Praise. Bye for now and may God bless you. Today in 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading, we're continuing I Saw God's Hand by the late missionary pastor Elwyn Martin. Much of the book is set in Papua New Guinea and is broadcast with the kind permission of Amazing Facts. In our last reading, Elwyn is anxiously waiting for food supplies to be delivered to his mission station. But bad weather was stopping the trading boats from reaching him. While waiting, Elwyn asks a friend if he could examine a fish trap that his friend had built. He was assured that nothing had been caught in the trap for weeks due to the bad weather and the trap was now no longer horizontal, but was protruding vertically above the river. When Elwyn examines the trap, to his great surprise, he finds a 25-pound barramundi caught in the trap. Continuing chapter 8, it must have been an angel. The manager was dumbfounded. How would it be possible for a fish to get into that trap unless it was airborne and then dived vertically into the trap. I felt I knew how the fish got into that trap. I wondered then whether my wife would cook it if we carried it back to the mission. 
No flesh foods had crossed our table for years. The fish was tied to a pole. With one of the boys carrying each end, we set off, six boys walking in front of me, two of them carrying the fish and six boys behind. About halfway back to the mission, another narrow pathway led off our track. Standing right on the edge of our track, where the other track veered off, stood a beautiful Papuan woman. I was deeply impressed with her lovely face, and in memory I can still see her standing there. Turning to me, she spoke in the Matuan language. The equivalent in English would be, Master, I have a gift for you. I thanked her and asked her what it was. You see. Turning to my boys, I said, Please see what that woman's gift is for me. The boys in chorus said, Master, there is no woman. Impatiently, I said, The woman who just spoke to me. Master, no woman spoke to you. It is not to my credit to say so, but I said, You clowns, the woman who is standing there. But when I turned, she was gone. How I regretted speaking those hasty words. Where the woman had been standing was a wheat sack, uncommon in those outback areas. Opening the sack, we found it was well over half full of beautiful yellow yams, a root vegetable, something like a sweet potato. Do you know that type of yam could not be grown within many days' walking distance of our area? The boys hastily tied the bag to a pole. Again, one carrying each end, we set off for home. I found it hard to fight back the tears as I listened to the conversation of my boys as we walked back. Over and over again I heard words such as these. It must have been an angel. And why weren't we permitted to see the angel? Or at least hear the angel speak? Is it because our skins are black and he is white? I assured them that it would not be because of the difference in skin colour. Upon our arrival at the mission station, I telephoned my wife... Our house, on the top of a small hill, about 300 yards away, overlooked the mission compound. I could hear my wife crying over the telephone as I told her that the boat had been unable to cross the bar. I then asked, If I were to bring home a fish, would you cook it? She replied, Yes, scales and all. For our Friday evening meal, we had fish and yams. For breakfast on Sabbath yams and fish, for lunch, fish and yams, for the evening meal, yams and fish, and for breakfast the next morning, the same. Shortly after breakfast, a runner came through from the coast to tell us that a boat had just crossed the bar, a boat carrying our needed supplies. I agree wholeheartedly with my boys. It must have been an angel. But the thing that put me on my knees was the fact that the heavenly being, with her beautiful face, had deigned to call me Master. Chapter 9. The Devil's Spell on Oveki To our surprise, one day we had a rather singular request made of us. A young man, about 20 years of age, from along the weather coast, asked to be admitted as a student in the mission school. 
With the school year well underway, we already had more students than our budget allowed. But after careful consideration, I told him that we would permit him to stay. One reason was that he was our first student from his village, which was known as one of the hotbeds of Puripuri, devilism, similar to pointing the bone among the Australian Aborigines. Let it be known here that I have seen strong young men, perhaps in the 18 to 25-year-old bracket, who were marked to die when in apparently good health. Generally, when they are marked to die, they are told that they will be dead by sunset the following day, and try as you might, you are unable to save them, unless you have been in contact with them long enough to instill in their minds the conviction that the devil's power doesn't compare with the power of God. This instruction is useless after they are marked to die. It generally takes several weeks and more often many months of exposure to Christian truth. I have seen many a young man marked to die and have done all I could to save him, only to watch him die within 24 to 36 hours. The young man, or Vecchi by name, was at our school only a few days when I was informed that some of his village folk had come to advise him that he should return home immediately, otherwise his father would puri-puri him. I did not know till then that his father was a devil priest of a vast area. Oveki refused to go, and I was fearful for his safety. During those few days I had spent much time trying to get him to understand that the master I served was vastly superior to the devil, and that when in need all he had to do was to speak the name of Jesus. Oveki told me that his father wanted him to follow him in his lucrative business. A devil priest can demand almost any price from a man who has an enemy whom he wants to put to death. Just a day or so later, on the Sabbath, when we came out from the church service, one of my students whispered that the Puripuri man was on the mission station. I hurried to find him, but when he saw me, he fled before I could even speak to him. I was almost sure that he hadn't been close to Oveki, so was somewhat relieved. It is not actually necessary for the devil priest to touch his victim, but he must come close or have some of his devil charms carried from him to his victim by one of his cohorts. When we closed the Sabbath, I was informed that the devil priest was again on the mission compound. Again he evaded me. About an hour and a half after Sabbath, as we were having our evening meal, one of the students told me to come quickly. Oveki was dying. It took me some minutes to get the story from the agitated and breathless student. I ran every step of the way down the hill to the mission compound. There was Oveki with froth and blood coming out of his mouth and nose. He was being thrown about in a kind of convulsion. Several of the boys were trying to hold him down, some of them much bigger than he, but he just sent them spinning. A dozen of them had no success holding him down. I asked what had happened, and was told by students and teachers alike that soon after I had returned to my house after closing the Sabbath, 
Oveki was thrown on the ground and began speaking in some unknown tongue. Before someone was able to run for me, Oveki had disappeared, but reappeared about 20 minutes later. Again he was thrown on the ground, and he called out in a tongue that no one could understand. Someone started running for me, but again Oveki seemed to vanish into thin air, only to return again in 20 minutes in as mysterious a manner as he had disappeared. Then he was gone again after being violently thrown about on the ground. It seems that his fourth reappearance coincided with my arrival. As soon as I was able to catch my breath and sum up the situation, I realised that Oveki was possessed by a devil or devils, similar to the man spoken of in the fifth chapter of Mark. I called the teachers together and we knelt in prayer. Each prayed. All the time we were praying, we could hear Oveki being thrown around and shouting out the name of the devil priest and then rambling off into some unknown tongue. We pleaded with the Lord to grant us victory over the demon. At last we arose from our knees, knowing that if asked we would have to admit defeat. Then in desperation I cried out above the shrieks of Oveki, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of him. Immediately Oveki was thrown to the ground and was calm. Completely exhausted, Oveki lay there bruised and bleeding freely from injuries he had received when being so violently thrown about. I put my arms around him and waited for him to gain his breath. He then told me that he had been down to the Myra plantation three times since sunset. Myra was five miles away and it would have taken at least an hour and a half to walk the distance at night. Walking was the only means of travel. Oveki claimed that he had been there three times in a little more than an hour. This just didn't make sense. But then my students and teachers testified to the fact that he had been there and had disappeared, reappeared and gone again, only to reappear and vanish again. They had already said in chorus, this is the fourth time he had returned. To be continued. Tune in again next week for the next episode of I Saw God's Hand, written by Elwyn Martin and read by Alan Lindsay. two-tip lady and I love giving simple tips to make life more simple. But I've got a question for you. Have you ever felt the sharp sting of criticism? Well I surely have and I bet you have too. My mother-in-law was a musician and a singer and I'm a pianist and she would tell me that the only way to avoid criticism was to never take the stage. Hmm, that's true indeed. She would often remind me that musicians are prime targets for criticism. It was played too slowly, too fast, too soft, too loud, too flamboyant, without any style, and so on and on and on and on. 
Sometimes the criticism would come immediately after a performance when I'd be on a high and still in the musical atmosphere I'd just been creating. Or it could be hurled in the moments when I'd be beating myself up anyway for my perceived failures. Because self-criticism can be the very worst kind. For a whole year I would often remind myself, be kind to me in 2003. Sure, why not? That's when I started to learn to be kind to me. Mum-in-law used to say when she was alive, Marilyn, you must develop a tough hide. Then the stings don't lodge and hurt so much. But does criticism just happen to musicians? No way, it gets hurled at us at every aspect of life. So how to react in the moment? Simply smile and say, thanks for your comment. I'll take that to heart. Then if it was a good point, remember it. And if it's just criticism, without a constructive point, just forget about it. Don't ruminate, no chewing it over and over. Sometimes that person has had a dreadful day and you just happen to be first in line to catch their frustration. So respond with grace and kindness. They just may need it. So that's my tip number one. Respond with grace and kindness. How we respond to criticism is important. We can grow so much because of criticism. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, we're reminded, in everything give thanks. So even if the criticism is totally unfounded, or comes as it sometimes even does from perhaps a jealous heart, we can be thankful for the opportunity to grow in grace and kindness. I've been tempted to defend myself, and I sometimes have. And the only person who really was hurt and looked stupid was me. Some people, though, are hyper-focused to look for flaws, and they're bound to find them. There might be truth in what they say, so be humble and look for the gold in their criticism. So tip number two is simple. Be humble and look for the gold. And in doing that, we are going to grow. Tip number one, respond with grace and kindness. Tip number two, be humble and look for the gold. So instead of reacting to criticism, we're going to develop dignity, grace and humility, and life will pan out to be a lot more simple. So that's it from the two-tip lady today.